for WERU comes from Maine Boats, Homes, and Harbors magazine, covering Maine's boats, harbors, arts, and architecture since 1987. Bringing the coast as close as the mailbox. On the web at maineboats.com. And the time is 10 o'clock. This is Community Radio, WERU-FM, 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 in Bangor, and streaming worldwide at WERU.org. Stay tuned for Boat Talk. monthly test of the emergency alert system for the state of Maine. If this had been an actual emergency, official messages would have followed the alert tone. This concludes this test of the emergency alert system. Uh, Vote Talk, please uh, give us a call. We have uh, phone answerers out in the kitchen who will take your call. Um, I'm not sure what the the uh, pledge number is. 1-800-643-6273, I believe, is the number. Um, Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague. And it's a 60-minute show where we crank up the anchor and call it a winching hour. Oh, Okay. <laughs> I should uh, save that one for October, actually. Uh, mm. Hey, uh, speaking of supporting community radio this morning in Boat Talk, um, you can call that 1-800-643-6273 anytime and make a pledge to community radio. Also, you could you could share your money and have a good time at the same time by going on the Boat Talk cruise. Ah, yes, the Boat Talk cruise. And I have a little uh, extra information on that, too, to talk about. Uh, as you know, on the last Boat Talk Cruise, we brought up the subject that Some Sound is no longer a fjord. I'm not having that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Well, we're going to do a little bit more research, in-depth research, we'll call it, into uh, the fjord, fjord controversy on the Boat Talk Cruise, which is June 22nd. It's a Friday uh, Friday evening from 6 until 9 p.m., leaving from Northeast Harbor Town Dock. And uh, I do have a plan, too, to how to how to try to get around this uh, fjord fjord uh, controversy geology is a notably slow subject a glacially slow yes Yes. and uh, to change definitions especially of one of my favorite pieces of water um, uh, I have problems well I think the Chamber of Commerce may have a problem with it too (laughs) yes that would be the other thing so the Boat Talk Cruise though is uh, it's a BYOB potluck um, Fun time. On the Sea Princess, nobody has ever had a bad time on the Boat Talk Cruise. I mean, it's just not possible. And uh, the itinerary varies depending on the evening. Uh, you know, if it's uh, real foggy, we might not go over and visit Martha Stewart. Otherwise, we might. Um, you know, we get ramble from Seal Harbor up to uh, the top of Somme Sound mm-hmm. and around what they call the Great Harbor of uh, Mount Desert Island, Northeast Harbor, um, Southwest Harbor, and the 
Associated Waters right there. And it's the legendary three-hour cruise. <laughs> but, again, nothing bad has ever happened on nope. the Botox cruise. And, we start and, off uh, lost, so there's no problem Just a guaranteed good time. Um, Great chance to hang out with a bunch of different people. The boat takes, what, uh, 70 people, more or less? Uh, we can pack on 70. We usually average around 50 to leave room on the engine box for yep. the potluck. And we, uh, you know, when everybody uh, sits and watches the water go by and snacks and visits with other people and tells boat stories and other stories, and it's just a good time. Plus, the... Um, your ticket price goes directly to support this here radio station. So you've had a good time and done a good thing. Right. $20 a person with children under 12 free. Cheap, uh, double, uh, triple the price. Right. Yes. Yeah. So the Boat Talk crew is coming up. How's that for plugging things? Well, yeah, yeah, we got a lot to plug today. Um, we have two very fine guests in the studio with us, too. We have the Honorable Senator Dennis Damon here to... Uh, talk about um, the Gulf of Maine. He represents right now the um, Penobscot East Resource Center. And we also have Paul Anderson, who is the head honcho at Maine Sea Grant, which is a, a division of NOAA. And we'll get into the discussion of that in a little bit, too. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Good morning. Um, on other things to mention, though, before I get too far off track... Oh, I think I have already. Penobscot Marine Museum is going to be having a uh, a new exhibit coming up, and it's entitled Shipwrecks, which always interests me. So, um, NASCAR without the car wrecks is not as interesting, and I would have to say that about nautical history as well. Well, they can be pretty disastrous, especially a few uh, fifty hundred more than that years ago. They could be pretty darn disastrous. Their their exhibit. Uh, starts the 2003 season starting with an opening reception on May 24th at 5.30 at the Penobscot Marine Museum. The, the exhibit is titled, For Those in Peril, Shipwrecks, Memorials, and Rescues. I like the rescue part. It's one of the great uh, lessons of boat talk, one of our great principles, I believe, that you've got to learn from the mistakes of others because you haven't got enough time or enough lives to make all those mistakes yourself. Yeah, you got to be resourceful, too. I remember our friend who was on the buoy for 27 hours. Yes, Bob Curtis, stuck yeah. uh, fisherman, uh, spent 27 hours on a bell buoy south of Vinyl Haven in January Ooh. in a snow squall. Ooh. And uh, come out of it pretty handy, too. Bob made fire on a steel buoy in the middle of winter with just, like I say, what he was wearing and had in his pocket. So a uh, pretty remarkable story. But uh, what was the other way I was going to go with that? Where were we going? Oh, the uh, <laughs> Many directions. Yes, the museum. Uh, another interesting uh, thing happening down to the Maine Maritime Museum in Bath. They've got the biggest sculpture in the state of Maine going. And it is, uh, right now, I believe they have up a uh, pipe... It looks to me like it's a pipe sculpture. Pipe sculpture. Sculpture. <laughs> Easy for you to say. <laughs> uh, we can still be here for a long time. And uh, one end represents the bow of the uh, great schooner Wyoming. I believe it was a seven-masted schooner. I think it was the biggest one ever built in the state of Maine. And a long ways away, about uh, something like 272-odd feet, um, is another piece of sculpture that represents the stern of the Wyoming. Wow. And these things are way up in the air because this was a big, big uh, ship. And they are installing this season 
seven flagpoles in between to represent the seven masts mm-hmm. and give people a a uh, really sculptural impressionistic idea of the size of this thing the seven masted schooner right. in wyoming i believe which was built in bath uh, back in the day when you could make a uh, big piece of money carrying freight around by sail here's a quick trivia question do you know what they named those seven masts after uh no but there was a rhyme and a reason to it after four uh, after maine and four i'm out of mass they, you know, they threw away all those right when they realized they had seven and they named them after the days of the week starting with sunday Good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Save confusion. Keep everybody on the same, on the same. Yeah. yeah that's it's an easy excellent idea. Up. Yeah. Sailors are a pretty practical bunch. We haven't given the phone number, but I noticed the phone ringing. Yeah, the phone is ringing. Somebody is calling to we talk like on th- Boat Talk. We like to think it's an open conversation at about any time, but we are going to talk about uh, fisheries and such this morning. one 625 9378 is the number into Boat Talk. Let's go to a phone call. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning. It's Captain Yo in Tremont. Good morning, Yo. I'm going to have to correct you guys. The Wyoming was a six-master. Oh, my God. I missed a mass. Oh. The only seven-master schooner ever built was the steel-hulled Thomas W. Lawton. I have that picture. Sounds about right, Yo. Uh, and she was yeah. kind of known as a brute and was hard to handle, and she finally wound up getting shipwrecked, I think, in Holland. So... Uh, there were actually several sixes. The Wyoming, of course, is the most famous one. The multi-masted schooner, the idea was to make a larger vessel that was still easier to handle than a big square rigger. That's why Thanks again for putting on Boat Talk, and thank you to everybody for supporting Community Radio. Okay, thank you, Yo. And we have another phone call. Let's go right to that. Good morning. Uh, welcome to Boat Talk. Oh, good morning. You're welcome on... Nope. Great example of why it's community radio all smarter together. That fish uh, got away. No doubt about it. So so that begs the question, what what were, what did they name the six masks? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Which days of the week? <laughs> yeah. What day do you want off this week? <clears throat> so Paul Anderson is sitting here, and uh, Senator, the, and distinguished Senator, was that again? How'd you label Yeah, he's former, <laughs> he, but I, yeah. I think maybe with a little prodding we might be yeah. able to Revive him. You know, I'd always thought of him as Dennis. You better be careful about that. Yeah, yep. Dennis Damon uh, sitting here. And, and uh, the uh, let's. Uh, where do we want to start this morning with Maine Sea Grant? I heard that mentioned uh, yeah, a little while ago. Let's, let's begin that with perk that. my eyes up. Uh, you also mentioned NOAA, which is the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, isn't it? National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. No, they're part of the Department of Commerce, a federal agency out of D.C. And, yeah, I, I run the Sea Grant program here for Maine. It's a network of uh, programs all around the country, and Maine is just one of 34 of them. They're primarily located at land-grant institutions on coastal states and Great Lakes. And we're funded under NOAA in partnership with the state. And with uh, the funds that we get annually, we put out uh, scientific research, education, and outreach programs related um, to most anything coastal lots of stuff with fisheries that we'll talk about this morning uh, uh, but we do a lot of other things uh, going on basically around the working waterfronts of maine working with aquaculture and how we can have an integrated multifunctional, um sustained working waterfront um we're trying to bring uh, 
sustainable tourism into the mix and get people to come up here and appreciate and understand their fisheries heritage and that there's a relationship between the people that build boats, ride on them, catch fish, and the food that they eat uh, when they eat f- seafood. So trying to create that continuum. Uh, and a number of other things that probably we'll touch on during the program. Thanks for having me. I'm based at the University of Maine, by the way. As part of a uh, research material I've uh, carefully assembled here from the Bangor Daily News from last November, here's a uh, symposium the Maine Sea Grant uh, put on about uh, the future of lobstering and climate change, just for instance. Yeah. So from lobstering, um, basically interested in any fishery. Yeah, That's we've done a lot, certainly with the lobster, it being a highly important species here on the coast of Maine. Uh, most of Maine Sea Grant's work through the University of Maine has been largely on state-managed fisheries. So I know you want to talk about cod and the ground fish complex, and we certainly will. We haven't done a whole lot with that element of research. It's largely driven by NOAA and their own fisheries laboratories. Um, but we've done a lot of research on the lobster, and certainly that 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 symposium held down in Portland was an international symposium where we heard the concerns of southern New England that lost its lobster fishery um, in a big way over the last eight to ten years and concerns on up into Canada around what does this changing ecosystem mean for that critter. And it's one of many uh, canaries in a very uh, crowded coal mine, in my opinion. When we talk about uh, various fisheries, we just uh, mentioned lobster, uh, cod, uh, this, that, and the other. I'd like to make the point that we separate them out at our peril. They're all connected. They're all taking place in the same same piece of water. And a push on one is a pull on the other. And a space um, in the ecosystem that is left uh, open because it's been overfished is maybe going to be filled up with something else. And again, all, all related. Uh, if I could, that, that particular comment is um, so... Apropos, I think, to uh, the fisheries management, the Gulf of Maine, and to our planet in general. Um, I have had the opportunity serving in the legislature, well, before that, um, being a fisherman and being the son and brother and grandson and nephew of fishermen. I've had the opportunity to um, view that occupation, that vocation, firsthand. And the thing that I have come to realize um, as I was working in the legislature and chairing the Marine Resources Committee, which makes the policy um, about uh, some of the state's fisheries, uh, marine fisheries, and, and also, also as I had an opportunity to serve on the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, which in a broader sense uh, makes the fishing policy for the whole East Coast, I, I came to realize just what you said, which is that this whole, we call it now, an ecosystem is integral and all of the elements that are in it are in it for a purpose and they're in it for a balance. And when we uh, unbalance that uh, for whatever reason, and most usually it's for some economic gain, Mm -hmm. um, there is something that was, we didn't expect uh, that happens, and that, that the void that you talk about, and how it's being filled, and what are the ramifications on other uh, organisms in that ecosystem, uh, that has become the perhaps the biggest thing that I've come to understand uh, in this lifetime. Just for instance, a uh, concrete example: 
the lobsters are booming and the ground fish are crashing. Now, ground fish uh, and herring eat juvenile lobsters. And the predators that the lobsters, uh, uh, you know, keeps the lobsters in, in check partly are not there right now. So I've got another article here that says scientists for the first time have noticed lobsters eating other lo- uh, uh, adult lobsters eating juvenile lobsters at night. They've never come across that before. And they see that as a sign of population stress. Too much population stress, which is great. You would think for lobstermen, but again, it's, you know, uh, landings uh, are booming, but uh, the lobstermen are not taking that all to the bank, too. So, again, all connected. Any uh, full-time lobsterman will certainly be able to tell you that uh, and and be able to say that uh, lobsters are pretty cannibalistic. And uh, if they're left in a trap... Um, they will find a weak lobster or they will make a lobster weaker and they will eat it in that trap. Now, whether that's survival, whether that's uh, stress from too many lobsters in the trap or what its uh, uh, genesis is, it is um, a fact. And so it's not surprising to me that we're now finding out that lobsters will eat other lobsters. Well, they have good taste too. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure they do. I have colleagues who dive for research and so forth, and, and they've they've described the bottom as crawling with these bugs at certain times of year. They're just everywhere. And to, to further underline your point, Mike, is that as we took the urchins out of the population, mm-hmm. uh, nothing was eating the macrophytes. Nothing was eating the large seaweed and, and the, the kelps and the various other... Um, you know, underwater forests, so to speak. And so that proliferated and created that hiding place for those juvenile lobsters. So that's another part of the ecosystem that got changed when we essentially took all the urchins out. When that trash fish, urchins, um, there's another So-called. Lo- local name. Uh, a lot of people them. made a lot, yeah. of, a lot of big money on well, this. Well, I'm, I'm talking before that, yep. that trash turned to treasure. Right. Um, there are so many um, fish that I had referred to and that other fishermen were referred to as trash um, because there was no economic value to them. And they become treasure when that uh, economic value is attached. We have been living during my lifetime in a pretty small ecosystem ourselves. Um, Mine started out in Northeast Harbor. Uh, It's grown a bit, but uh, I've come to understand that there's a whole world out there. And so um, a sea urchin that would um, cause me some pain sometimes if it got the uh, points in my fingers, as I was taking it out of the traps, all of a sudden now becomes, or I'm I'm to realize, or other fishermen are to realize, it's become something of value to somewhere else, some people somewhere else in the world. So what do we do? We go out and harvest them. And, And policymakers are notorious for being behind the curve. And so with the harvest and the overharvest, because of the prices, we get into a situation where we deplete them. A similar situation, in my mind, is occurring now with the elvers. And that part of our ecosystem that people, if they know about it, uh, they don't um, hold it in very high regard because, after all, it's a slimy, slippery (laughs) eel, right? And what good can they be? Well, aside from the nutrient transfer that they bring into our ponds and and lakes and rivers and streams from the ocean, uh, they are a critical piece, a forage piece, and they provide a place. But here we are either as they have spent a a rather long life cycle 
interior <coughs> and and try to get back out to make their once uh, in a lifetime breeding experience in the Sagasso Sea, whether they try to get back out in a ground up by uh, hydroelectric turbines or whether they come in as the baby elvers and we're scooping up them up because of um, the tremendous amount of money that can be made from it, we're really disrupting that life cycle of that particular organism. And as unpleasant as some people may find it, I find it particularly important to our ecosystem. Well, we started talking about how all the fisheries are so related, and I wanted to make that big point. You uh, talking about urchins and elvers and such bring up another interesting point to me, uh, I think is fundamental to fisheries. Uh, was taught by a fisherman a long time ago. The big trick to fishing is not actually catching fish. It's selling them. <laughs> it's markets, okay? Without It's driven. Now we're, we're, we've gone past ecology. We're talking economy now, and markets rule when it comes to catching fish. The urchin market never really properly existed, nor did the elver market, um, and now they do. And markets shift, and to be able to... to um, keep an industry, you have to have the infrastructure, you have to have the market. Another good example would be that um, ground fish boats that operate offshore tend to drag up lobsters. Those lobsters are prohibited from being landed in the state of Maine, including at the Portland Fish Exchange. Um, those lobsters that get dragged up end up going to Gloucester, Massachusetts and stuff. Maybe they end up coming back to Maine on a truck to get sold, but they don't get landed here on a boat. Boat doesn't come in, so there's no ice, there's no fuel, there's no everything else, people working on the boat there. Um, that was just unanimously voted down in, in the in the main legislature for third or fourth time, <laughs> the idea of, of allowing these lobsters that got dragged to be landed. and. Uh, but markets is the is the point I wanted to make. Uh, markets are are just integral, and you got to keep the infrastructure around your market too. Or it doesn't matter. A fisherman can go out and catch anything he wants if he can't sell it. So what? The the marketing piece is important, um, but it's only one of the important pieces. And if you let it uh, take over the policy or the management of the resource you're in a bad way. Doesn't money always take over the management of, uh, of whatever, it, it, Senator? It, it does. You know? uh, uh, oftentimes it does. Um, I, one of the best quotes that I have ever heard about fisheries management came from one of the meetings that I was attending in Washington on the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. Be I had recognized that people would come before the committee um, in the legislature and, and Fishermen would come and say, if you make this rule or you make this law, you're going to be taking the food off of my table and I can't feed my kids and what am I going to do? And, and I would oftentimes look at them, whether it dealt with scallops or lobsters or shrimp or whatever, and I'd say, no, I don't want to take the food off your table. I want to make sure that your kids have an opportunity to be fishermen um, when they grow up as well. So we have to find that balance. It's a very difficult thing sometimes when you throw in the uh, economy piece. And so the, the quote was made, fisheries management isn't rocket science. It's harder. <laughs> and, and, and for a lot of the things that we have just discussed in this brief time period, I hope that the listening audience uh, brings that all together because it's a very difficult thing. You're dealing with something that most people can't see, fish in the sea. Good point. You're dealing, you're dealing with a, a, an economy. You're dealing with a way of life. Uh, everything is in balance or out of balance, and it's tough. So, 
Well, there, I just want to speak a bit about the marketing thing. There's a not a new buzz, but it's a refreshed buzz around the nation, around community-supported fisheries. And, mm. and really the bottom line here is, all right, it's always been for a fisherman to make more. They just had to catch more. And there was going to be a linear relationship with their how much they land and, and whatever the commodity is going to earn them per pound or per unit. And uh, I think there's more more thinking, and some of our more innovative fishermen and and growers and uh, others are thinking about ways to add value to that product, so that it's not just a linear relationship. And uh, so, connecting people locally to their fish is something that's happening here in Maine, and uh, we're following on some trends that were taking place in Alaska ten or twenty years ago uh, with community-supported fisheries, where people can buy shares, much like cons- uh, community-supported agriculture, in a local fish, um, you know, cooperative, and uh, and and buy into that fishery, have regular um, fish on their plates, that, and they have a connection, they have a relationship with the fishermen that they can form. And some fishermen are, are able to do this, and at, a, at the right scale, it can work. It's not going to solve the, the nation's uh, interest in, um, in seafood consumption, but for some places, particularly in Maine, some yeah. of our communities can make that connection. Port, Port Clyde, they're doing that uh, right. in that area as well. Uh, that's, that's the difference, I think, between community-based fisheries, um, small-scale fisheries, owner-operator on the boat, versus the much larger-scale fisheries, um, the corporate fisheries, the bigger boats, the amount of gear and the type of gear that can be fished that is so efficient, um, combined with the technologies uh, to find the fish give them very little opportunity to survive and it seems as though we can go all the way back to the mid-1970s with a uh, 200 mile limit in the magnuson stevens act of of the fisheries which is still in effect and we're trying to renew it occasionally Um, but we were thinking that these big boats coming from Europe and Eastern Europe and Russia and Poland and everywhere else that were coming to George's banks were going to be the ruination of us. And indeed, they were fishing a lot. But when we were left in control, our policies were to take some of the smaller boats out, thinking that we were reducing the effort and encouraging bigger boats to be put in. And that's not community-based fisheries as far as I can see. That's not helping the Port Clyde, which is the really the only ground fish fleet east of Portland, when in fact ground fishermen uh, used to go all the way to um, the entire coast of Maine. My first fishing experiences uh, at age five, I think, were with my father dragging on a 42-foot Novi boat. It wasn't something that we stayed out for weeks at a time, it would be getting up early in the morning and going out and fishing all day and then coming home and doing the same thing over again. But that was and is, in my mind, uh, sustainable fisheries, community-based sustainable fisheries. Mm-hmm. That old Novi boat of your dad's was involved in several different fisheries. And exactly. you uh, padded out the year by moving, moving around the effort of what the boat was doing, focusing on different things. We would be doing ground fishing. We could be doing yeah. scalloping. We could be... Shrimping didn't come in down east in, in my early um, childhood, but it certainly has now. Um, he didn't have a seining operation, but we did go stop seining. 
Um, and so we did a lot of things throughout the year on a diverse area of fisheries. And now most of that is gone, and our focus is simply on lobster. We've gone from landing, I remember the headline of the uh, Ellsworth American that, that talked about the lobster landings of that particular year broke 20 million pounds. Last year's landings were 124 million pounds of lobsters. All it's just record, un, yeah. unheard of. Yeah. However, also unheard of, and again, I deliver boats up and down the coast. I was just over to Nova Scotia the other day, and I get down to the southern to here pretty re, uh, regularly. The lobster fishery down there is in total collapse. Um, I believe the figure I read in the paper in Long Island Sound was 99% of the lobster fishery is just not there anymore. And uh, the lobsters they get are, are uh, not very good looking either. They have um, attributed that to the warming of the water as well as other factors and also have um, the Maine Sea Grant has uh, proposed that Possibly the r same reason why their fishery has collapsed is why ours is booming. Is what it said in the paper there. One that the um, um, our fishery still has a, a uh, sufficient temperature gradient here for the lobsters, hmm. and again our our predators are way down. Um, right, the Gulf of Maine though um, has some peculiar vulnerabilities, and Dennis was talking about this earlier, so mm -hmm. we can talk about that. Uh, indeed, the the temperature changing up here as it did in Long Island Sound, um, along with Long Island Sound and, and its geography, is um, issues of oceanography and the stratification that ends up happening. So probably oxygen levels were an issue as well, as well as the fact that there's a lot of runoff of various things. Whether you want to point a gun at a particular um, pollutant or not, there's just a lot of stuff coming off the land. West Nile virus spray was well, that alleged was to be a factor as well. We tried to kill mosquitoes and end up killing lobsters. But there's remember, the Gulf of Maine is a sea within the sea, is what's been described. With George's Bank out there, we actually have a peculiar um, both opportunity with our oceanography and, and the, the, the rich nutrients that we can have in the Gulf of Maine, both from the water and as oceanographic contributions. But it also leaves us with some vulnerabilities. If we end up with significant temperature changes and less um, shifting of hydrographic conditions and we, we perhaps get some stratification going on that we didn't have before and changes in nutrient and oxygen levels at different depths, that's going to change which what animals want to be here. Mm -hmm. um, we have a phone call. Let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning, Alan and Mike. It's Captain David Jolinas calling with the Penobscot ah. Bay and River Pilots Association. Captain oh, hey, we talked to you for a few minutes, Captain yeah, Dave. We were talking about you earlier. Um, <clears throat> you are putting on what I call the uh, the heavy metal boat show this weekend <laughs> coming. I wonder if you want to please describe that. Yes, this uh, Saturday, May 18th from 10 to 4 p.m. on the Belfast City waterfront at uh, Heritage Park in Harbor. Uh, we're going to be honoring National Maritime Day. Uh, nationally, it's celebrated on the 22nd or some date close to that. So for us, we selected Saturday the 18th so that uh, people would have the day to come down and take a look at the heavy metal craft, as you say, that keep the commercial ports and waterways safe and operating efficiently. Uh, we're going to have various tugboats there, uh, pilot boats, uh, oil spill response boats, um, law enforcement vessels, all of these boats are going to be available for public viewing and boarding. Nice. We um, had you on Boat Talk a little while back, Dave, and, and uh, talked to you in your capacity as uh, a member of the Penobscot Bay Pilots there. 
Uh, how's local boat traffic coming lately? What, what have you brought in lately? Oh, well, I'm just getting back from the office this morning after sailing an ethanol barge uh, at 4 o'clock in the morning. They discharged 20,000 barrels of ethanol in Searsport before proceeding to Portland to do a balance of discharge at three docks down there. In the last three days, we've had uh, a heavy lift generator has been landed in the port. We've had gypsum come in for Dragon Cement. We've had various loads of, uh, let's see, one load of asphalt and clean oil products, heating oil and diesel and gasoline. So it's been a, it's been a pretty busy few days here in the port. Uh, David, this is Dennis Damon. Uh, do you? Do Hello, you? Senator. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Great to speak with you, sir. Uh, thank you, same. Uh, do you also um, work with the piloting of the cruise ships coming into Bar Harbor? Yes, sir. We, we pilot all the vessels that come into the port of Bar Harbor. I think we're looking at a record year coming up of about 110 ships. And we've already, wow. actually, we've already started calling. We've already had two or three uh, visits. Yeah, that, that's right. I had seen in the local paper that they were thinking of that there were, might be as many as 135 visits this summer, which... Um, you know, it may be good for the economy, uh, and I think that it is, uh, but there are issues that come with that kind of traffic into that small an area, and it's good that the, that the uh, Pilots Association is uh, looking after us. Yes. Well, we've worked hard to try and minimize wa- conflicts on the waters, uh, Senator, with uh, the recommended route system that we have in place and the designated anchorages that we have up in the port of Bar Harbor. Uh, so the, the best tool that we have to minimize conflicts on the water is uh, communications, keeping that schedule posted. Everybody knows when the ships are coming, when they're departing, and which route they're going to follow coming in and out of the port. That's good. I wanted to also uh, acknowledge earlier, Mike and Alan, that I heard you speaking um, with the senator and with your other guest about uh, the University of Maine system. And I did want to say at Maritime Day uh, we're going to have uh, participation from NOAA who you discussed, as well as a, an organization called NIRACUS, the Northeast Regional Association of Coastal and Ocean Observing Systems. They're the um, successor to GOMUS, uh, which is an offshore network of offshore buoys that reports weather conditions, sea conditions, wind conditions, and the University of Maine and Orono is an uh, integral part of that network of people, and that's, uh, we're going to be bringing down one of the ocean observing buoys from the university to have on display at Maritime Day. Uh, extremely important part of keeping the ports safe and the waterways safe, even though it was originally designed for uh, oceanographic data. It's also got tremendous commercial and safety applicability by letting us know what the sea conditions are and being able to forecast weather windows. Nice. Speaking of weather windows, it looks like you're going to have some fairly good weather coming on this Saturday. Um, yes. if, if a family, I'm thinking this would be great for kids. If I were an eight-year-old and my parents asked me if I wanted to go on a tugboat, I think I'd probably be right beside myself to, to do that. Um, if a family wanted to come down to Belfast on Saturday to uh, check this out, where, where do they go first to, go, uh, to uh, branch out from? Well, the uh, event kicks off at 10 a.m. down in... Uh down in Heritage Park. There's plenty of parking in the surrounding area around Heritage Park, but it's literally the city park adjacent to the downtown waterfront in Belfast. And in fact, we're going to have a dozen commercial boats available for boarding and viewing on the Belfast town docks. So that's the central location. We kick off things at 10. At 11 o'clock, we have a commencement ceremony um, for Mariners Lost at Sea. At uh, 11.30, we're going to have a presentation for uh, uh, Maritime Person of the Year, which we're honoring Mr. Peter Vigue for his past work and brewer in Rockland in mm. terms of 
uh, bringing in commercial ships and enhancing the maritime infrastructure in those areas. And then later on in the afternoon, at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we're going to have a fireboat demonstration by the new fireboat. The city of Bangor is sending down their boat for that. And we're going to have a live tractor tug demonstration to show people the capabilities of the uh, modern tugboat that we have down here in Belfast that we use in Searsport. So uh, the day goes on from 10 to 4, plenty to see, a lot of booths. There's going to be about 15 or so organizations inside of tents answering questions and handing out information, about a dozen boats for viewing on the docks there, plus those demonstrations. And it's all free. Dave Gelinas, uh Penobscot Bay Pilots, giving us examples of uh, stuff that comes and goes by water. And you're talking about Peter Vigu, he's the CEO of Chinbro. And, of course, they built a whole mining plant in Newfoundland on the Penobscot River in Brewer and then just boated it over to Newfoundland, which you can do when you transport things by water. That's uh, right. A great example of using Maine's historic maritime links. Yeah. Not, not only, excuse me, not only is he the CEO of... Uh, Chimbro, but he's also a graduate of Maine Maritime Academy. Yeah, who is going to be prominently featured at our Maritime Day celebration. Maine Maritime is sending over the tugboat Pentagoet as well as their electronic training vessel, the Ned. So um, anyone who's interested, uh, children, families interested in Maine Maritime as a possible uh, path for education and employment would be would be well suited to come down to the Maritime Day celebration to learn a little bit more firsthand from the folks at MMA. Dave, i got to ask you one more question on the way out here. Yes, sir. Um, do you, I mean, is there any, like, rock star syndrome or, or anything if you're driving, like, the biggest cruise ship as compared to piloting, you know, a dirty old ethanol barge? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, no, no. In fact, some, some members of our organization would choose the ethanol barge, trust me. <laughs> really? I would have thought you would have gotten caviar and fresh Valencia yeah. orange juice on the cruise boats. Yeah, uh, no, special there's, there's, uniform for the cruise ships, you know, big well, hat, yeah, a lot, do, of, a lot of gold lace. Yeah, we do the whole jacket and tie thing for the cruise ships, and I have one, uh, I, I did have one partner now deceased who, who would absolutely, hands down, take a dirty old asphalt barge instead of putting on a jacket and tie any day of the week. <laughs> Just curious, Dave, trying to get a yep. glimpse of your work there. <laughs> well, thanks very much for having me on today, you guys. Well, All thank right. you, David. This is coming I hope again. we see some of you down at uh, Maritime Day on the 18th. Oh, on the 18th. You can count on that, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And that'll be right downtown Belfast, Saturday, May 18th. Can't miss I think anything I'm happening to make it down at the uh, town dock on, on the Belfast waterfront. So, And the tugboats and, and those workboats are, are very interesting. He's talking about this ethanol that just come into Searsport. Who even know we needed any? Who even, you know, the stuff that comes and goes. Infrastructure is, we've already spoken of it, I about the fisheries this morning. most of that ethanol goes down to Allen's brandy factory. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to say, but, uh, uh, again, infrastructure, kind of important, uh, you know, for having a society and a state and all the, all the things that have to happen yeah. therein. So the number to boat talk is one 625 I believe we have one uh, phone call. Let's go to that. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Hi, this is Captain Yo again. I just wanted to answer the other part of that question about multi-masted schooners. <laughs> the proper names for the mass on a six-master are four main mizzen jigger spanker driver. Although some vessels simply numbered the masts, and it is said that aboard the Thomas W. Lawton, the masts were named after the days of the week. Thanks again for putting on this program. 
Thank you. Thank you, yo. I would have put Mizzen at the very back end myself. But there we go. Yeah. No, no reason to doubt him. We are doing boat talk this morning. We mentioned that it is also the... Uh, what we call it, the fun-a-thon, the fundraising time here for Community Radio. And you can give the ladies out in the kitchen a call, 1-800-643-6273, and pledge something if you find yourself at any time for any reason enjoying Boat Talk. Or you can pledge on the WERU website, too, which is WERU.org. So, yep, back to fish. Back to fish. If I might... Um you were talking earlier, we were talking with Paul and Noah, and uh, Sea Grant uh, being a part of that, of being funded, I believe, by Noah. Mm-hmm. Um, the organization, one of the organizations that I'm working with now is one that's referred to as PERC, Penobscot East Resource Center, and it's uh, based in Stonington. We're in our 10th year, um, and the, uh, the mission is to... Um, secure a future for fishing communities in eastern Maine. Pretty simple, but pretty grand at the same time. Uh, I was attracted to it because having grown up in eastern Maine and having been around that fishing community, I have seen it change. And and um, I don't think that we should be stuck in the past forever, but I think some of the changes that we've seen um, are not as healthy uh, as they could be. Uh, both for our economy and for our communities. And so with regards to NOAA, uh, our executive director, Robin Alden, and one of our board members, happens to be her husband, Ted Ames, and and a couple of other of our staff uh, recently went down to Washington because NOAA was sponsoring a, I think it's best as a symposium, I don't know the exact words for it. Um, They do this periodically because they... um, have to um, reconstitute, or it's not that's not the word I'm looking for, but they have to review the uh, Fishing Act, the Magnuson-Stevens Act, that was established after the 200-mile limit. And so they had asked uh, Robin Alden to come down and make a presentation on um, community fishing and sustaining community fishing. And that's what I was talking about earlier, uh, the small boat fleet, the owner-operator, the diversity that we were talking about, Mike, and the fishing um, for Eastern Maine. And so that's been a focus. And when I look at that, and we've seen and we've talked about um, the depletion, for instance, of the groundfish stocks, um, Ted Ames has done uh, tremendous work, noted work, in terms of trying to figure out where the um, uh, spawning areas were for these various stocks. And getting it through the historical record, getting it through landings, getting it through a a bunch of other ways that he did this. And and you know what he found was that many of these spawning areas for the groundfish stocks and and the areas where they continued to inhabit were fairly close to land. And they were at the mouths of some of the rivers that we have, the Penobscot being one and uh, some of the mid-coast rivers being another. And so the correlation here is that these anadromous fish, these fish that spend a portion of their time in the ocean and then a portion of their time in the freshwater, and they spawn in the freshwater and they come back out, they, they, it's like a smorgasbord. Think of the, the tons and tons of biomass that are coming out of these rivers into the 
waiting hungry mouths of groundfish. Why would they leave? Well, they did leave, and they left when many of these rivers became situated in such a way, either through contamination or through dams or whatever else, so that these anadromous fish, these fish that for generations, for eons, had traveled up and down them, were not coming out in the numbers. And so, and so the fish might be there in the spring when there were some fish coming out, but then they might go somewhere else. And so we lose some of our um, population, our biomass. Mm -hmm. We have just done something that I think is going to uh, be historic. We've opened up the St. Croix River to the Elwives. I tried to do that when I was in the legislature and it didn't work, but we've just done it. And and the Elwives are just starting to come in. That that can provide a huge, huge... opportunity for ground fish restoration and it'll be good to watch yeah it'll be good to watch i was concerned that after having been shut off for so long that they may have lost their uh, whatever mechanism it is that brings them back to the rivers but i hear reports that they are coming back so that, that is a good sign they're already starting back and i heard that same report uh, as an example of how quickly uh, they can be lost though um if numbers were correct there were an annual count of 2.6 million fish coming into that river and after the legislative action of stopping it it was reduced to 902 fish in virtually a couple of years yeah so they're coming back one of my staff is based out in eastport chris bartlett brought in some video last week that he took of the gopro camera that he hung under a little under the water and they were just teeming it's really impressive we'll probably end up putting up on the website but they they do have this resiliency and i I think that some of these diadromous species will find their way back and and the penobscot river restoration project which has really only just begun in the last Mm. five to ten years is i mean it's been called one of the greatest habitat restoration projects on the planet and uh and scope and um when they finally do redirect and and uh, take out some dams it's going to open up a tremendous amount of the, the riverway and that's probably going to uh, result in all all of these other species finding their way back as long as they find the conditions um, Sounds desirable. like a damn good idea to me. <laughs> yeah, me too. The first thing we did when we got here in colonial times was to dam up those streams for water power. Yep. I saw Absolute a map. first thing that we did. I saw a map of those New fish. England. Yep. A map of New England of all the um, hydro dams from the 1700s forward. Yep. And uh, it, it almost covered the map. Mm-hmm. Everywhere. It's like thousands and thousands of them out there. Yeah. Yeah, reading Marconi's uh, uh, history of Han- uh, settling of Hancock County. And the first thing you did was built a mill and started sawing boards. Yep. Then you put up a barn. Then you built the house. Then you might make a mill that would saw uh, uh, grain and stuff like uh, that. Uh, grind but, grain with yeah, a grist mill. Yeah, first thing you did yep. was get some water power going and make some boards for shelter. The little village of Solmesville on Mount Desert Island. Uh, in the town of Mount Desert, uh, had a number of mills on that little creek that comes out uh, that is so picturesque now with the mill pond as you drive right through. But those were all a result of either grinding mill, making lumber, cutting lumber, doing something else. That's where the power was. Every mill blocks the uh, fellow upstream every, from them. The fellow yep. upstream is throwing crap down in the water towards yep. your dam, and and uh, fish like say are on the outside looking in, and it's been that way since we first got here. So uh, it's interesting. This, the, this is a historic trends. opportunity, I think. And uh, it relates and ties in very nicely to what we're talking about in terms of the Gulf of Maine and restoring those uh, fish species. 
Well, looking for the big commonalities here, we talked about how uh, all the fishers are related, uh, markets being so important. Dennis uh, got us all uh, up, up on the S-word, sustainability. And I think we just got to admit, too, I guess we have already, the water is changing. Mm. Um, the water is changing at the present time. Global warming, you call it whatever you will. Uh, the water is physically changing, and then the, the species mix is changing all the time was just down to Nova Scotia delivering a boat. We spent a delightful uh, little time in Lunenburg, Nova Scotia, and got to talk to a bunch of fishermen. A couple old fishermen just ramming around the town, uh, you know, with the dog in the front seat looking for somebody to talk to and <laughs> tell some tell some stories to, you know. And, and uh, oh, they're catching stuff down there that they've never seen these fish before, don't huh. even know what to call them. Mm. Um, that, that's just started the last few summers. Mm. And uh, the effort way off, um, you know, the herring's way down. Um, the just uh, the volume of, of the fishery is hugely, hugely down. And uh, the other thing that was uh, interesting to me was, uh, and it happens here too, the fish plants going right along, but the fish aren't coming by boat into the harbor. They're coming by truck down the road. They get yep. the fish wherever they can for the fish plant. Yep. It doesn't necessarily even be connected to its own ocean that it sits on. Hmm. How about that? We have another phone call. Good morning. Welcome to Boat Talk. Uh, yeah, uh, good morning. Uh, Ron calling from Glenburn. Um, I think what, what I'm really talking about on this one is that I, I actually I just had an article in Oceans Magazine on this, but uh, I'm 75 and I, I'm, I am possibly one of the last living people who, who, who saw the, the, the North Atlantic fisheries as they were. I, I was, my father was a fisherman. Uh, in the early 50s, I was uh, 13, 14 years old, I, I went out, this was a, kind of a rite of passage for the, the, uh, the sons of a fisherman then, I went out on the banks and uh, two weeks on a beam trawler Old Newfoundlanders who had a very, uh, I don't know, experiential view of education. They they, they give it give they give you the look. This is by Jay. Says boy, you do that, and you won't do it twice. <laughs> uh, but when when the nets were hauled back in the fifties, it looked like a great hot air balloon bouncing out of the water. Uh, you, you were you, you finished that watch. You were still cleaning fish. Okay, I went again in the seventies. I, I went fishing a couple of years in the 70s. I never saw that. Sometimes the caught end would, would sort of break the surface, but you never had that, that big ball of fish. Sometimes the caught end would break the surface. Hmm. Now, what is frightening is hearing, and this was 10 years ago, I was up in the county fishing church, and I heard a guy on main public radio, a fisherman, and he was talking about the 70s as the good old days. And, and I think that's what's sad. I used a guy from one of the islands, as much a part of the sea as the, the seabirds and the fish. But he thought the 70s were the good old days. And I, I think maybe that's what's, what's scary. Frogs being boiled. <laughs> yeah. Changing baseline, you know? <clears throat> yeah, it, it's... Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm 75. I saw it. I saw that, that ocean. So do you... Do you do you think that, uh, that with the uh, considerations we're taking now that things will get better for the fisheries? I think it'll get better, but we'll, we'll, we'll never get that fishery again. We'll, we'll, we'll never recover uh, the, the, the fishery of, uh, before the technology that came out with World War II. And you, you, 
you you cannot have a fleet of fishing vessels with with equipment that can give you the uh, the age uh, the name the age the 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 sex um, and the political orientation of a codfish at forty fathoms. <laughs> uh, you you can't expect to keep you know to maintain that at that job. You know, may, they may maintain it at a, at a well, harvestable level, but you'll never see the fish. Well, and you talk of your family, we've been talking to fathers, grandfathers, and grandsons, the idea being that somebody's grandson would have a path to a future with a, a boat and some fish in it and a decent life. Yeah. That's, that's I guess, what we're trying to, is the goal to secure here. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. I would hope we can, and I do anything I can for it. Well, one of the unfortunate parts, too, that the caller is bringing up is that um, some of the fishermen, and they're primarily lobstermen at this point, um, think that uh, restoring the groundfish stock is going to be a bad thing because they're looking at it as the potential predator for some of the lobsters right. that they're catching. When they don't, they're not able to see it because they don't have the historical perspective of seeing the entire picture and having all of those fisheries together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like people who uh, don't want the coyotes or wolves to come back because they're going to take away the deer. Thanks for your call this morning, Ron. Oh, Ron's gone. Yeah. We are coming up towards the end of Boat Talk this morning, and, and our mm. guests are uh, Paul Anderson from the Maine Sea Grant and uh, Senator Dennis Damon. Uh, Senator Dennis Damon, I'd like to ask you something else uh, inspired by my trip to Nova Scotia there, talking about regional differences. Um, same piece of water, different governance. Now, um, governance is all to determine how things will turn out, but uh, do we cooperate um, much with the Canadians? Just for instance, I noticed uh, we had a terrible problem with floating line down there on this trip. Now, all the boats on the state of Maine um, uh, side have all cashed in their floating line in the last few years for a sinking line, and didn't they howl? You know how much line that was mm. for that fishery, the lobster fishery in particular, and uh, how much that was worth? Now, you go down to Nova Scotia, and, and what they're fishing down there right now is um, west of Yarmouth, they have um, uh, traps with toggles and uh, a lot of floating line on top, but, but uh, the east of uh, Yarmouth, they have a single buoy and floating line, and they use just enormous amounts of it. So when you come up to a lobster buoy on the surface, there might be up to 10 to 20 fathoms mm. of, of line. Laid out. Just laid out right mm. on the surface, drifting around the buoy, and you can't get anywhere near that buoy with your boat. Um, but again, we've done that because of right whales in here. They've got line just spewing everywhere. They've also, they've also got right whales, but it might be just um, uh, their opportunity to try to keep some of the boats away in these, <laughs> in these boat, boat traps that they're setting. I don't know any reason why there would be that much um, floating rope uh, on the surface if there were floating rope um, whenever I used it, and there wasn't much of it when I was fishing, and we used a toggle to keep the line up off in the bottom, but there were some people who were using floating rope, and... and uh, it was an aggravation because you wouldn't expect that you're going to get hung up in somebody else's rope um, just because you've seen their buoy. So uh, you asked about about cooperation. I, I think that there is, um, uh, Paul talked about um, some of the um, symposiums that Sea Grant um, 
helps to sponsor what bringing not just national but international groups together. And I know that a um, uh, fellow uh, Bob Bear at the university with the Lobster Institute does the town meetings, the lobster town meetings, especially with the Maritimes and and uh, Maine and, and New England. So there perhaps is more uh, conversation than there used to be, but I don't think there's any kind of concerted effort, not that I know of, to uh, have the rules that affect us necessarily affect Nova Scotia or New Brunswick or vice versa. But certainly, we, we try to get the rules that affect us in lobstering uh, to be the same in the United States with neighboring uh, and states. That's pretty and, hard and, we, too. and we can't do that either. As the, just a quick aside, we were talking about the um, uh, mandatory V-notch, uh, the marking of the buried lobster yeah. uh, at the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission and uh, our neighbors to the west, uh, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, uh, they c- how are we ever going to institute something like that? We don't have enough money to institute something like that. Well, you, you, couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't use the sense that you're going to be saving your lobster stock by having your fishermen uh, voluntarily mark the lobster? Um, it, it's just... It, mind-blowing to me when it's a basic from what I grew up with and what my father said this is the reason why we do this is because we want you to have lobsters they mm. do that different down in Nova Scotia too and on a closed body of water here we are acting all uh, aloof from each other's uh, ideas about how to manage it good luck uh, people you know so they're playing the music in the background we're being piped off Alan well I think we got quick uh, minute to put in uh, contact information for Penobscot East resources for anybody who would like to uh, Find some more information on that. It's uh, PenobscotEast.org, I believe, is your website. Is it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew. There is a connection from uh, yes. the BoatTalk.org okay, website. thank you. Yeah. And, and your, your search engine at Maine Sea Grant, and you'll find us pretty easily. Yes, we're, exactly. We're based at the University of Maine and uh, always available to talk to community folks about any of these issues. Thank you very much, Paul Anderson and Dennis Stamen. This is Alan for the... Uh, for Boat Talk with Mike <laughs> Joyce. Stay tuned for Rich Hill Singer coming up next with On the Wing here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill. Support for Boat Talk made possible in part by Gamble and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main windjammers for 30 years. Near the harbor in Camden, campbellandhunter.net. Support for Boat Talk also comes from Windward Passage, a co-ed program providing Maine's middle and high school students ages 12 to 18 with opportunities to experience traditional sailing along the coast of Maine. More information at www.windwardpassage.org. Windward Passage is affiliated with Sail Maine, a nonprofit organization. medieval times, it was thought if you had the right combination, you could turn base metals into gold through a process known as alchemy. Well, it never really turned out that way until now. With this recent discovery, we have been able to turn ordinary 